Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. He uh, corresponds with um, um, high profile and some, uh, you know, just, just he with convicts, serial killers and stuff. And he, uh, he's got a, quite an interesting uh, history. So we thought we'd bring him on. Um, Cody Lockie, how are you doing, Cody? I'm good, Alan. How are you doing? You okay? Yeah, well, you know. Um, so, <laughs> this is, uh, you, you've got a, quite a history. Um, how did you get started in how your life turned out? Like, where, um, so for people that don't know, he's he's been to prison a few times and, and he's had a, a rougher start than, than let's say, uh, me or Julie, but let's talk about your history a little bit uh, catch people up on you yeah so i was born in a place called huddersfield which is in obviously in the uk it's in west yorkshire um i was i was my mother's first born the relationship broke down she got with another guy um that was his first daughter so i slipped to the bottom of the pecking order uh, their relationship broke down and then she met another guy and they had a daughter, so that was his first child. So again, I was, I think I came somewhere behind the cat in the pecking order again. Um, and like I say, I used to play up for attention. I was getting battered at home, locked in a room, had to urinate and defecate in a bucket, curtains nailed to the wall, locked in a room against me will. Uh, going to schools, getting bullied, absolutely battered. Uh, I had big ears, I was just bullied, called taxi doors, dumbbell, all the usual stuff. Uh, and what it was doing every time there was an incident, it was like throwing a bottle of, uh, I guess you guys call it soda in the States, throwing like a bottle of Coke against the wall. 
uh, and it was just bubbling and bubbling and bubbling and bubbling, uh, and then it eventually exploded and stuff. And uh, I just tried to take my own life when I was like, I tried to hang myself in the bathroom when I was about 12, ran away from home, was sexually abused, um, just all sorts of stuff that's go on. And like I say, I I can speak about it openly now simply because it's like it used to own me and it used to it ruled me for a long time but then when I came to terms with it and I accepted it was part of my life uh, it's part of me now and I accept it and I've I can talk about it because I've come to terms with it in many regards Cody the experiences you have we, we, we know that um, young people and children who go through those you know what you've described as horrific life experiences will if they don't receive the appropriate support to not just come to terms with everything because there's one thing about coming to terms and understanding and there's another part that's understanding the impact that has on us that they, they need some support when they're growing up and need that help did you ever receive anything like that no i didn't know i was definitely the black sheep of my family you see uh, and like I say, the fact is, because I started to rebel and started to play up and stuff to get attention, my opinion was, well, I'm like, I'm the black sheep, I'm out of the loop. So if I play up to get attention, albeit negatively, attention's attention in some which way. Um, and like I say, it, it didn't get me attention. All it did was get me uh, the very heavy end of a, a belt buckle. Or like the first time my nose was broke, it was actually my mother that broke my nose. Um it was just violence was part of me. I mean, if you if you raise somebody with love and affection, chances are they stand a high probability they're going to turn out to be loving, like kind-hearted people. If you raise people with hate, then and violence and stuff, you very easily to become a product of your environment. And I very very much so was a product of my environment. I mean, I used to sit at home like when I was locked in my room and stuff. And I was actually having like dreams and stuff and like fantasizing about murdering my mum and my stepdad. And I say that to my shame now and stuff because I've actually got a really good relationship with my mum now. Um, but then the, the pain and the suffering and the bullying at school and the bit like uh, being levered at home and stuff, I was just, it, it was the aggression that was inside me um, was just boiling and boiling and boiling and it was going to explode and it did explode. Um, but like I say, it, it was, I, I got kicked out of school. I was disruptive in class, both in primary school and in secondary school. Um, and like I say, it's just, it was just part of me and stuff. And I'm not proud of any of these things and stuff because like I say, I, I, I went on to, uh, from being a victim of violence, I went on to obviously perpetuate violence on other people uh, to a very, very, um, like extraordinary, uh, put it like this, I've been arrested by armed police and stuff like that I was I was known for carrying weapons and stuff because I wanted to hurt people as much as the, the anger I'd had in me for all my life when I kicked off I mean I was bullied up to a point where I was I was in year seven which is a in secondary school which is like the first year of secondary school and um <clears throat> this person that kept like non-stop bullying me and we was on the yard one day, and he was supposed to be one of, they call it in the UK, like, the so-called cock of the year. It's like the hard man of that year in school. Now, we ended up coming to, like, he knocked into me, and it became a fight, fight situation, because that's what he was try, trying to get out of me. People started to gather around. Um, all, this, all this violence and stuff I'd suffered, and all this, like, like I say, throwing the, like, a bottle of soda against the wall. It exploded there and then. Um, 
and I really, really did this guy some damage. Uh, I absolutely, I battered him, and I battered him bad, and it led to me like getting in trouble with the teachers and the head of the year, and then I ended up being excluded. And from that moment where I kicked off and I actually lost the plot, literally, um, I realized from that moment that don't ask questions, just fight back every single time, and violence is actually a very good tool to control people and stuff. And if people feared me, um, then they would leave me alone. And I've, to my shame and to my detriment, I carried that mentality for 30, for, for, for 30 years plus. And you've developed over that time, you know, a huge insight and described being the victim to being, as a young person, that would be a natural position, no matter what was happening. You, you are a victim, you're vulnerable, you're exploitative. And then, you, then you, you go through this phase where you regain that control and that power and you exert that over others in the same way that you have found through being a young person that that's what you needed to do to get to where you need to be in life. And then you get to this next point in life where you've reflected on all of that and suddenly thinking, well, I've made sense of it and I understand it and I, I, I almost forgive for that. So that's, that's a huge journey to go through, Cody. That was that was only my young years though. That was that was like pre-teens and stuff. That was, and then like I say, it sort of. What once I set that this monster that was inside me that was bubbling away, was just when I unleashed it in that year seven fight on the top yard at the school that I went to in Greater Manchester. Um, I, I never looked back, and from being the victim, I said to myself. I ain't going to be the victim no more. Now, there's a fine line, though. I, I despise bullies to this day. And even when I was incarcerated and stuff in prison, um, I actually would diffuse situations or I would get involved in situations that didn't involve me because my conscience and my mind was telling me what you're seeing isn't right. That guy's bigger than him. He's bullying him. Interact. And I think that stems from my childhood and stuff. And like I say, it, it ventured into criminality. It started off small. I was first arrested when I was like 12 years old and it was over a bloody kinder egg. Um, I went, I gave my mate a pound. He went into the shop. Um, he came out. He'd stole it. I was waiting outside. He handed it me. By handing it me, he'd been stolen. It was stolen goods. The manager grabbed us both by the collar, brought us in the shop. Um, we wasn't arrested per se. We were taken back to, I was taken to my mum's address. Uh, I could see her face on the front doorstep. I knew I was going to get battered. Um, and I was more bothered about that. Then I started attacking my mate in the back of the police car because I knew what I, what was becoming when I got through that door. I knew I was going to get battered. Um, like I say, just those swings and roundabouts, but again, wasn't academic in school, was kicked out of secondary school, went to another school, disruptive, non-academic, saw the fact that my mother wasn't academic and, and as such, she struggled to put food on the table working like minimum wage jobs and stuff. And I wanted better for myself. So what I did is I saw the criminal route as a fast route. Um, but then my nana died as well. My nana was like my role model. Like my nana was the one person that I trusted. She was my idol and I idolized her. And like what, 16, like uh, six weeks before my 17th birthday, uh, she tragically passed away from a massive heart attack. Um, and that was it. I was drinking. I was trying to cause fights. I wanted to hurt people. I wanted people to feel the the um, aggression and the violence that I had inside me. I wanted to unleash it on the world because my nana had been taken and stuff. And But the thing is, as I sort of calmed down, I remember that I made my nana a promise when I was about eight or nine years old. My nana said, 
what do you want to be when you're older? And I said, well, I want to be an, I want to be an army man, like action man, like soldier. Um, so we made like a little pact. Um, many like years later, I actually, like after she died and stuff, very shortly after she died, I applied to join the British Army, which I did in her memory. My family was telling me I couldn't do it, putting me down. Um, I did it. I passed all the tests and stuff, went and done my beat up in Scotland, in Edinburgh. Um, yeah, and just sort of, that unleashed a new monster though, because it's very cliche saying you train to kill, but that's, that is, as a soldier, I was already desensitized. I was all on the brink of being dehumanized. And then you're giving me weapons and you're teaching me, like I say, we did like things from unarmed combat to small arms to firearms and stuff. And it was, it took a new angle to my aggression and to my violence that I was perpetuating on people. And, um, I was drinking a lot and getting, I was based in Germany. I'd get into fights and I'd attack people and, like, rather than walking away when I've knocked them out or whatever, I'm trying to put bottles in the throat. I'm trying to, I'm trying to kill them. I was trying to kill people. It's as simple as that. And I say that to my shame and to my detriment, but it is what it is. And and that's why you were serving. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that. Well, two two reasons, right? I wanted to hurt people, but on the other opposite side of that, what I wanted to do was it was for my nana's memory in one way. Um, I wanted to hurt people, and you can do it legally in the army. That's another reason. Um, the other reason was because if I didn't go to join the army, I saw the army as like a way that, oh, well, because the way I'm going, I'm going to end up killing someone, I'm going to end up in prison. So it was that was also a reason. I was living at home. I was just turned 17 um, in the December, and I was like, you know what? I, I don't want to do this no more. And then I joined the army, and... To be honest, the army probably made me worse because, like I say, I was I started to get into boxing and stuff like that, which, uh, again, you te- you're being taught how to hit harder, how to hit faster, how to transfer your weight to get the most out of a punch by, like I say, swinging your legs, like swinging your hips and stuff, and the, the, like, the momentum travels through your gluteus and cross, and then when you hit someone, you get the most impact out of your punch. I was also, away from that, I was studying like pressure points, uh, jugulars, uh, veins and stuff like that, places where, sever- like arteries and stuff. So if you get into trouble, um, like go for the arteries and switch off points and power points and pressure points uh, so you could get the most impact if you come into a violent confrontation. Um, again, it, it made me worse. Again, brought me to trouble of the army. I ended up being... Um, I ended up being put in a psychiatric unit near the, up near the border um, called Vegberg, uh, which was a British and uh, American base. was in a psychiatric unit there. Um, they applied for my discharge on the fact that they said, you, 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 you've got psychopathic tendencies, you should never hold a rifle again. Um, and being a soldier without a rifle is, is just no fun at all. And as a result, I was discharged from the military came back to the UK. I was then homeless because I'd had a, I'd had a breakdown with my family communications. Um, I was living in a, in a, it was like a, like a park thing up in Haywood in Greater Manchester. Uh, some people that were drunk came through um, and I was asleep and they started on me and I, I knocked one of them spark out. The other one didn't want to know. Um, and then I ended up sleeping in an outside power station for a few months, eventually got into a homeless hostel, eventually got a council flat, um, got security qualifications off my own back, started to work the doors, got involved with the, the local drug gang that was mo- moving on a massive, massive national scale, moving kilos and kilos of heroin. 
I got into the gym, I was taking steroids, I had this hair trigger temper, which meant that I could earn money from my remorseless aggression. And that's exactly what I did. And, it, and then it transpired from that, that I became involved with a notorious gang from Manchester. I was working on the doors. So by, by night, I was protecting people. As in, I was working as a nightclub bouncer, doorman, protecting people. And I, I took a great pleasure in that. I enjoyed looking after people and protecting people. By day, or when I wasn't working on like nights in the week, I was going through people's doors, balaclavas, weapons, uh, involved with firearms, and, and just went from there. Do you know what I mean, it was, and then I became involved with a notorious Manchester gangster by the name of Dominic Noonan. Um, and again, was in the eyes of the police, I was like his loyal right-hand man. Uh, I don't say that, that's just the way that it was perceived to the police and stuff. And uh, I don't know, it's part and parcel of life. And like I say, I, I'm not proud of a lot of things I've done, but I was definitely, definitely a product of my environment. Now, I know right from wrong, but the fact is, is this, this aggressive natured side of me was made, in my opinion. And like I say, I don't know if it was like, if it was like a generic or I, or I inherited it from, because my mum was a very feisty, fiery woman. I don't know if that was what it was, but like I say, I'm, it is what it is. Simple as that. And so, you describe being first um, imprisoned at the age of 30. Yeah. And, and some might say absolutely, you know, I mean, you're in that area, so Strangeways might not have been um, uh, the most unusual place, but actually Strangeways is a Cate prison, HMP Manchester, as it is now called, and notorious for high-risk prisoners. Um, and um, I was reading an article earlier that you'd written about your first 24 hours in prison and yep. even you are you know you are quite worldly wise you've been in you've had to look after yourself for, from a very young age right through um your your criminal life in your 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 army life and then latterly when you were homeless etc um, yeah. and probably, probably just for clarity cody what people who are listening in america may not understand is that here there is um it's very difficult for somebody, a single male who is deemed to be okay to, to get housing when they're homeless. It's really difficult um, and it takes a long time for certain um, age groups of people to be, who are not deemed high priority to be supported with those services. And a lot of people find that a real pressure point, especially when they're coming out of prison. So um, for you to be, people might say, well, actually you remembered the armed forces and you've come out and and then you were homeless is as unusual but the fact that you were you were medically discharged and um you were in an age bracket where you would have been deemed an independent young adult um you wouldn't have necessarily been a high priority um so just just thinking about um that point when you so you're, you're in court for sentencing, and um, I'm not asking you to give the, the crime that you were sentenced for, but then you were told that you're going to serve a sentence at Strange Ways. How did that feel? Well, what it was, I was actually arrested because, like I said, I was, I was involved with this notorious gangster, Dominic Noonan, who, like I say, um, documentaries have been made about him. He's uh, part of the notorious uh, crime family, the Noonans. And what it was is I was actually arrested on a witness intimidation charge 
uh, stemming from four alleged phone calls, one which was attributed to be made by me. Now, these people, former friends of ours, were under police protection um, because they saw the threat as quite credible. They had CCTV placed outside the house, uh, dictaphones, um, call recording apps on the mobile phones, things like that. Um, and four calls were alleged to have been made, one by me, three by other people. Now, the three by other people were recorded. The one that was attributed to be made by me miraculously wasn't recorded simply because it didn't take place. Now, I was arrested, questioned and charged within the space of 12 hours. Uh, because it was the weekend, I was arrested at three o'clock on a Saturday. They kept me in till Monday morning uh, because there's no court on a Sunday. So they put you before a magistrate's court on the Monday. Um, and before I'd even gone up into the court, I had a meeting with my brief, with my solicitor. And he said to me, even if you get bail, uh, which means obviously I'd be going home, um, you, he said, he said, you're not going to get bail. He said, I've spoken to the Crown Prosecution Service, who, uh, like I say, they bring the charges. Um, the police gather the evidence, the CPS, it's down for them to charge you. Um, and he said, even if you get bail today, the CPS are going to appeal, the Crown Prosecution Service. So I knew, he said, tonight you are going to Strangeways. And I'll be honest with you, I was... I knew that it was always going to come. It had taken the police a long time to get to this situation where I'd actually, like, for all the things I'd ever been arrested for, some very serious offences. And they end up remanding me on a witness intimidation with no evidence, no call recordings, no forensics, no DNA, no nothing. But when he told me I'm going to strangers, I'm, I'll be straight with you. As guys, we do this whole macho thing, and it's a masculine thing because, well, we're men, and it's prison, and we're not bothered. The reality was I'd hurt a hell of a lot of people and I was very mindful of the fact that this notorious prison that uh, even though I was a hardened criminal, I had never I, I had never been a jailbird. So I'd never spent time at Her Majesty's Pleasure. Um, so it was really, really a shock to the system. And uh, they placed me in the like I went up into the court. I got bail. The CPS appealed. They waived this piece of paper. And then the judge obviously reminded me into custody and I'll be honest with you, when I stood up in the dark, my, my legs were like jelly, I'm not going to lie to you, they really was. And like I say, it was the fear of the unknown, because I've, I've, I've mastered a lot of things in my life, I'm very streetwise, but this was a world that I would, I'd run parallel to by being a criminal and being involved in serious organized crime, but I'd never been to prison, and there's prison rules, and then there's prisoners' rules, and I was put in this prison van, we call it a sweat box, but it's a prison van, with a couple of other prisoners, uh, they popped the door and then they just said, right. And then we pulled up at this gate that I've been on visits to this prison, this notorious prison, the, the scene of the strange ways prison riot back in 1990, the, the longest in the, in the um, criminal justice system here in the UK. And I'm going through this gate and I'm like, oh my God. So then they pulled the other lads off. Then I was the last one off the van. Um, getting strip searched and stuff like that and because I'd been on documentaries these, the, the prison officers knew who I was which wasn't a good thing because they spoke to me like rubbish and they were like right get in there get naked and you're getting strip searched and then you have to sit on this like chair which is to detect metal within your body for mobile phones and things like that um, I was very nervous I was very anxious and like I say I could have done the whole macho thing and said oh yeah, it's easy blah 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 the reality is, is I'm not going to glamorize it. And even though I'm quite a hard person physically and emotionally uh, through my life experiences, I was very, very scared, very anxious and like worried about what was going to come. 
And then, like I say, you go through the process of stuff of being processed, taking your picture, getting strip searched, sitting on the chair, handing your prison issue clothes, putting me into a holding cell. They give me food and a polystyrene tray, which you wouldn't give to your dog. Saw the nurse, made a two-minute phone call, um, and was in this room for several hours until they ended up eventually taking us to this wing and stuff. And everything that I thought prison was when they opened this door and said, right, here's the wing, and you walked onto this wing at this notorious prison, high-security prison. For those that don't know in the States, prisons here in the UK are categorized. Category A, which is your high-security facilities. Category B, which is like a medium. A Cat C, which is a lower. And then you've got a Category D, which is a, an open prison. Obviously, in between that, you've got STCs, which are secure training centers, which house children and then obviously you've got female prisons as well but I walked onto this wing and I could see from the ground floor up to the top floor which is called the fours and everything that I'd ever seen of prison documentaries and stuff down to even if you even though obviously um, the what's it called Shawshank Redemption even though that was filmed in the States it was the sort same sort of makeup as in you can see from the ground floor to the top floor and I was now in this notorious prison as an inmate. Um, and like I say, um, you've got to learn quick. And because I was a big guy, that doesn't mean that you, like, you're higher than anybody. It actually can mean that you can be a victim because people can see you, the size of you, and see that as a challenge to try and assert some sort of dominance over you. Um, that never happened, luckily for me. But you've got prison rules. You've got the prisoners' rules. The officers, for the most part, in the for the prisoners in the UK, um, you've got private prisons, which are, like I say, run by Sodexo, G4S, things like that. And then you've got the public sector, which is run by Her Majesty's Prison Service. Now, HMP officers are a lot more by the book and a lot more unapproachable for the most part than private prison officers. But um, I was just, I spent 22, 23 hours a day locked up in this notorious prison. Um, I saw, I saw suicide attempts, I saw self-harm. A prisoner set himself on fire, um, cell fires, people covered in their own excrement, fights, violence, um, just death, misery, and despair of the highest order. And it stayed with me, but it can't, it didn't deter me because I'd went to prison two further times on two other stretches and stuff. And I don't know, it's just prison in it. And I think that um, one of the things that um, is really difficult about going into prison in the UK is the, uh, depending on the to support you can get and training and and that rehabilitation stuff so um the shorter your sentence the more likely you are to go and re to to reoffend when you come back out as a survival because it's what you know so so moving on slightly from that so you you went back into prison another couple of times what yeah. was it what was the trigger for you that said this this is just not me this is not for me this is not okay do you know what, Julie, right? On my third and final stretch, uh, I've nearly been out of prison uh, in, in, like, in four days. Um, it will be two years since I've actually left prison. And what it was, uh, this is crazy. This is how the story comes full circle. And I guess I come full circle as well in many regards, is the fact that on my last stretch, right, I've, in the last couple of years, I've got a very, very good bond with my mother. And like I said, we've covered the early years and stuff like that and what I'd been through. Um, on, whilst I was in prison, I become, I, even though I don't like relying on anybody for anything, I, because I'm in prison, 
I can't keep my property and check my mail because I'm in prison. So my mum stepped up massively. So she didn't approve of me being in prison, but uh, we had a very good bond. Now, what it was. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist visit juvederm.com that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com not for people with severe allergic reactions allergies to lidocaine or the proteins used in juvederm common side effects include injection site redness swelling pain tenderness firmness lumps bumps bruising discoloration or itching there's a risk of unintended Intentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I rang her partner that she was with at the time, um, and he said... Like, as she told you that she, like, she thinks she had a stroke and, like, she had a heart, she's got a heart condition called angina. Um, and she'd been having, like, really tight chest and stuff and she thought she was, like, a little heart attack slash stroke. Um, he told me this on the phone. He said she's not sleeping, she's not eating. It's affecting her psychologically, emotionally, not to mention financially because the financial restraints of supporting somebody in prison is astronomical. Week, month, year, do you know what I mean? So, um, and she's working 60-hour week, right, for minimum wage again. And then she's traveling two and a half hours to come on a visit. Uh, then she's spending an hour on the visit, two and a half hours back. In between that, she was going to my property. She was getting into debt because I didn't know this because I was spiraling to rent arrears. She was putting it on her credit card, which obviously the, the, um, the APR on the credit card, the payments was higher. Um, and it was stressing her out. And I'd, for some reason, I'd never seen this myself on a visit. But because this guy had told me, 
And I, I actually had a visit with my mum a few hours later. And my mum's come on the visit, and I'm sat there at this private prison in Salford near Manchester, this Forest Bank prison. Um, and my mum comes on the visit and stuff, and I'm sat there looking at her, and I'm looking at her hands and stuff because she's getting older, because, like I say, and then the fact that she smokes so much, and she's like... Because she's like breathing heavy because she's battered her lungs through smoking over years for decades. Um, seeing the bags under her eyes, seeing the fact that she was trying to put a brave face on it. I, I became incredibly guilt ridden in that moment and stuff. And I really, really, like, it, I felt unsettled. It made me unsettled on the visit. I was looking at my mum and I'm thinking, you're trying to put a brave face onto me because she's a strong woman and she's not trying to show your weakness in front of me. I didn't see, because I was self-centered, because when you're in prison, as mad as it sounds, you become very selfish to an extent. It's all about you and stuff, and you, you feel like the prisoners' families don't understand what you're going through because they're not in prison, when the reality is, is they're on the roller coaster that is prison right with you. So anyway, cut a long story short, the visit finished, we stood up, um, I give her a hug, um, I hugged her especially tight on this like hug, I like a big bear hug. Um, the visit finished, she left, I went and sat, I went back to the wing and stuff, sat in my cell, um, the, we end up getting locked up, and I cried myself to sleep that night, I felt incredibly guilty, I felt guilt-ridden, I, it just didn't sit very well with me, and between waking up, between, sorry, between falling asleep and waking up, I had like an epiphany, where, I, and like a light bulb moment, and I woke up the next day, and this journey of prison again where I'd contemplated suicide and I was up and I was down and I was aggravated and frustrated and stuff. I lost myself and then in that moment I'd found myself and I was thinking clearly, more clearly than I'd ever thought in my life. Um, and a few weeks later eventually I was released um, and I met my mum. My mum came and picked me up from the jail. Um, I walked outside, I gave her the biggest dog. We set off. Uh, and I said to her, I said, I promise you, I will never, ever, ever put you through what I put you through on them last couple of stretches. I said, no. And I said, I apologize from the bottom of my heart. And you know what? We, I went to probation and I saw probation. He wasn't ready. So I went into the local area, got a breakfast because I was starving, went back to probation. And then, um, yeah, ended up just like got back to my address, checked my mails, went out for food with my mom. And was forever grateful. And to be honest with you, it was the making of me. Now, like I say, the the, the, the strange thing is, and, and the thing that like is crazy, the fact that I believe that my childhood played a contributing factor in my criminality and definitely in my violent tendencies and my violent nature. And the way I and the reason I came away from crime was for the same reason, my mum, which is crazy. Do you think if somebody that was um skeptical in terms of uh, maybe the um, psychology behind that if you if they were to say to you well actually years of trauma means there needs to be a real rehabilitative or reparative parenting in the same way as that we have kind of that reparative um, support given to offenders when they're when they're released you know on in different ways by probation or outside services now Thinking about that, in terms of your relationship with your mum, it wouldn't be unusual for us to say that no matter what a young person goes through, they will always gravitate back towards family because we we want to have that bond, we want to have that relationship with our family, and we seek it. it doesn't matter what no. they put. We'll still, we'll still. You probably know this better than better than than, than I would in experiencing wise, but you um. 
you always want that relationship to be a good one. It doesn't matter what sort of parent you have, whether that's somebody who, who absolutely shows you affection in later years or, or not, you will seek it anyway. And so what conversations did you have with your mum that kind of made it okay and put everything to bed? Because she must be feeling somewhat of the pinch and the guilt as you talk about it in, in interviews and, and, and talk about your experiences. There must be something in there for her that still, you know, really affects her. Do you know what? To be honest with you, Julie, no. We've never really had, right? People ask me this question a lot. Like, I speak at universities now, criminology students and stuff, and I always get asked, like, why do you, why do you forgive your mum? Why have you now got a bond with her? Why have you had the conversation with her? Have you had it out with her? Like, have you discussed at length about what you went through, what it did to you, and stuff like that? And the reality is, no, I've never. And to be honest with you, I, I don't think I ever would. I would never want to put my mum in a position where she felt uncomfortable. Now, as mad as this sounds, Julian, people freak out when I say this and they can't get their head around it and they can't grasp it. People say to me a lot, like, so if you could go back to your childhood and be born to another family, be raised with money, morals, principles, and everything in between, or go back and live exactly the life minute for minute, second for second, I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat simply because it's made me who I am today. I am very streetwise. I've become very respectful. I've, like I say, I, I'm very street. I can handle myself massively. Everything that's been ever thrown at me in my life, I've been homeless twice. I've been in prison three times. I've been shot at. I'm physically, I've been stabbed. I'm physically scarred, mentally scarred, and emotionally scarred. And strangely enough, I've actually come out the other end as a as a decent person, and that's crazy to say. I'm actually volunteering now with an organisation here in Manchester. I start on Friday um, that actually help ex-offenders, people that have battled mental health issues, addiction, homelessness, and ex-offenders. And I can't wait. And I, I can only do this because I've been on this journey of self-discovery and stuff and like I say I do forgive my mum for what she put me through and I also where my past used to I used to drag my past around like a ball and chain and I could never move forward with my life because I was always looking back I, I used to live I used to talk in past tense I'd always talk about the past and violence and stuff and then now I only look back to see how far I've come. I really, really do. And I'm very grateful for the, for the, for the bad things that have happened and the good things because when I was in prison, had it not been for my mum and the emotional support that she gave me whilst I was in prison, um, honestly, I think I'd be dead. I think I would have taken my own life in prison because psychologically, and I'm not ashamed to say this, prison brought me to my knees. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm... Anyone that says they've been to prison and haven't cried or haven't contemplated suicide or spiraled into depression, simply put, they're a liar. Uh, prison psychologically, emotionally, and like I say, just it takes its toll on you and also those around you. And my mum put me through a lot and I'm sort of grateful for it because it, it's part and parcel of me. I accepted that and I'm now, I use my experiences to educate, deter, or, like I say, speak to criminology students and stuff, and I get a lot of pleasure from it, um, but I'm a different person now, the way I project myself, the way that I carry myself, and the way that I see things as well, definitely much so. Yeah, I certainly wasn't um, meaning to come across as though I was questioning why you would want that relationship with your mum, because it's absolutely normal and natural that, that we would. And there are many um, examples of people who 
who don't have to have those conversations, but just move forward and take the learning with them into both of their relationships, but not having to really speak about it. Um, so totally in total admiration that you've turned that round and, and, and you're more settled now and you're able to support others. One of the, um, you know, the, the key parts of your life now is about helping a, with the, so is the reforming of the prison service. Uh, as you've already alluded to, there are many different um, experiences of different prisons, depending on who is running them. Um, and also in terms of the um, supporting criminology students and those, and trying to also, with your voluntary work, prevent some of those young people getting involved in activities that are not going to be helpful to them later on or place them at risk. So in terms of your, let's look at the, the, the reforming of prisons first. What do you think needs to change in our prison system? Uh, I mean, obviously, for obviously the listeners, obviously this going out in the States now, the, the prison population here in the UK is fluctuates between 83 to about 86,000, uh, give or take. Now, we've got one of the high, well, that's going to rise to over 90,000 in the next couple of years. Um, we've got one of the highest prison populations in Europe, um, for the past couple of years, we've seen record levels of violence and self-harm. Um, the amount of prisoners leaving prison in body bags, whether it be natural causes or whether it be self-inflicted deaths, suicides, obviously, uh, is absolutely astronomical. Now, the truth is, prisons, prisoners here in the UK, uh, you're housing some of the most vulnerable and susceptible people in society. And they've not had the best starts in life. I've been in prison with people with serious mental health issues, undiagnosed, diagnosed. And the fact is, is housing somebody in prison costs about £40,000 per annum, um, where if you're going to put them in a high security psychiatric unit, we've got three in the UK. We've got Rampton, we've got Broadmoor, and we've got Ashworth. Now, if you put a prisoner with serious mental health issues in Ashworth, for example, you're talking around £350,000 a year. So, and, but the thing is, you're paying for that one-on-one -on -one care, the medication, the, the psychiatrist, and the help that comes with it, that one-on-one -on -one care to, to try and help these people or at least suppress them and try to help them and medicate them. In the prison system here in the UK, we're, we're just throwing mentally ill people in prison and like I say, you're seeing contraband's a massive problem as well. Where you've got contraband, you've got debt. Where you've got contraband, for those that don't know, is mobile phones, drugs, um, new psychoactive substances like spice, uh, even tobacco now because the smoking ban and stuff. Now, where you've got contraband, you've got debt. Where you've got debt, you've got fear, intimidation, bullying and violence. Um, mental health services are inadequate within prisons. We need to dramatically reduce the prison population. Um, Reoffending in the UK costs the taxpayer around fifteen billion pounds a year. Um, now, every time I do an interview, and I, everyone plays devil's advocate. So, Cody, what would you say if you say that we're going soft on prisoners? And I'm like, there's two things, right? You can you, you can't brutalise and rehabilitate someone at the same time, right? The punitive measure of prison is losing your liberty, right? Once we get over that, prisons need to be places of skills training, education, reintegration, resettlement. And like I say, that's what it should be about. And technically, that's what people would like you to believe prison currently is. But there's no consistency. And for me, rather than making uh, students uh, prisoners out of our students, let's make students out of our prisoners. And 
it frustrates me to see what's going on within the prison system. As someone that's served behind my door and stuff and seen what goes on within the wing and seen prisoners physically leave prison in body bags and stuff and speaking to their families and people being murdered and stuff. We had like four last year. We've already had one murder this year uh, at Risley Prison in Warrington. Um, I would dramatically reduce the prison population. I would reduce, uh, I would, sorry, I would abolish short sentences because they're counterproductive. There's no sentencing plan. Um, I would defer sentencing for prisoners that are mentally ill. I would get a, psychiatr a psychiatric report done on them. And if they have to be in prison, simple, section them, put them in a psychiatric unit, whether it be medium, whether it be high. Um, the, the fact is, prison simply doesn't work. Now, by brutalising prisoners, most people in the UK, most people want to brutalise prisoners from the, from the right side of the tracks, the white and the white, and they want to brutalise now, by brutalising prisoners and housing them in these squalid conditions and these decrepit, Victorian, run-down prisons which you wouldn't put your dog in, um, all that simply does is it succeeds only in demoralising, desensitising, dehumanising and making it even more disenfranchised than when you entered the system. Now, here in the UK, we've got lowest police figures since, I believe, 1996. Under the Tory government, we've lost in excess of 21,000 officers, uh, give or take. Now, the, the streets here in the UK are lawless. Community police stations are closing down. Youth services have been cut. Um, so police reaction times are down. Crimes are going unreported, uninvestigated and, even, uh, and unsolved as well. And the reality is, it's lawless. And, it, and you've got these people in prison that are leaving prison. Like I say, they're being spat out. They're being chewed up and spat out, demoralized, desensitized, dehumanized, right? And that only creates monsters. Now, like I say, with fewer police on the streets, what do you think these people are going to do? It's a, it's a green light for criminals to, across the board to commit crime. So, and the fact that prison doesn't work for the most part, hence why reoffending rates are so high, it's just, the, the system's as broken as those entering it. It's as simple as that. It really, really is. So, again, moving forward from that, because I think you raise a lot of really interesting points. In, in, in terms of your ongoing contact, um, you're in a lot of contact still with people in prison, aren't you? Yes, I am, very much so, yeah. So, would you, I mean, again, you say that people play devil's advocate. I'm, I'm not doing that, but I am intrigued as to why you would do that do you think that that's part of your ongoing recovery do you know what that's a good question that julie yeah do you know what what because my mom always says this to me she says look you're outside of prison now right you've been out for nearly two years right why are you still doing interviews why are you still doing the youtube stuff because i do all the youtube videos and stuff for prison news what's a pack for prison contact for prisoners families and stuff and and, and like I say, and then speaking to, I've spoken to serving prisoners just the other day. And like I say, what it is, it's like, I'm trying to help them and I'm trying to give prisoners a voice. Now, what I do in the UK, I contact, I get contacted by quite a few journalists and stuff to do interviews on prison issue. Now, I'm slowly coming away from that because I, I've been out nearly two years and my experiences, uh, I'm no longer relevant to, to be truthful. Uh, even though I know me prison and stuff, the, the face of prison is ever-changing. But what I do is I keep networking with prisoners' girlfriends, prisoners' families, prisoners' mothers, serving prisoners and stuff. And what I'm doing is I'm building a little network, and I'm actually giving prisoners a voice, um, and I'm trying to help them where I can help them or advise their families and stuff like that. And just being supportive on the other end of the phone where you've got a prisoner's partner that's 
her, her fellas rang her, he's suicidal uh, and stuff like that. And then I'm ringing the prison, I'm trying to speak to the chaplain, even going as far as to ring the police in one, in one circumstance. So like I say, I'm just trying to provide a service where I can. I mean, like I say, I'm not an expert on anything. I'm simply an expert in my own experiences. Now, if I can use that, people often say to me, Cody, why do you keep doing like, why do you keep trying to help people and stuff? You don't get paid for it. And the fact is, is if you gain knowledge through something, through whether it be a negative experience or a good experience, what is the point in having that knowledge if you're not going to spread that knowledge and share that knowledge and help other people, right? Surely that is the aim. If you know something and you can help somebody, then help them. Now, like I say, I don't give it help that's uh, infactual or that's non-productive. If they ask me a question and I can't answer them, simply put, I will go away and I'll speak to someone that can give me the answer. Um, and I just try to help people. But asking me, does it, has it helped me? Then on the YouTube side of things, like where I do the YouTube stuff, the vlogs and stuff, that started off as I had a lot in going on in my head after leaving prison. And I thought that if I put it into a video format, I didn't put any tags on my video or anything, so people couldn't really find it because there was no tags on it or anything. It was let, it was helping me offload the psyche because I wasn't hurting people or like involved in any form of criminality, and I walked away from everything and everyone I'd ever known. I I didn't want to hurt people, so I've got all this going on in my head. So, and I, I'm not one of these people that wants to go and speak to a doctor or a psychiatrist. I simply offloaded onto these videos on YouTube. Slowly, I started to gain a, like a following and stuff, and it sort of went from there. So it has helped me definitely very much so in the sense of getting my experiences and what's going on in my head out. It's, it's de-stressed me, and by doing so as well, it's also helped other people, which has helped me. So it's both been beneficial to me, and it's also helped prisoners' girlfriends, people that are potentially going to prison for the first time to try and, like, um, mentally prepare them for prison, not that you can, but trying to help them in some which way. Speaking to kids down in Taunton in Somerset where he was from a good family and he was going down a criminal route and his girlfriend cheated on him and he wanted to hurt her and hurt the fella. And just talking to him and saying, look, mate, you're from a good family, you're going to end up in prison. And trying to deter people and detract people from doing what I used to do because I don't want to see them end up killing somebody or being themselves killed because like I say the, the lawlessness of what's going on in the streets in the UK with knife crime gun crime um, and like I say they just uh, under the overwhelming lack of police is off the scale so it's helped me it's helped other people um, and I'm very grateful for that definitely Julia and you would have learned quite a lot from other people as well in their experiences talking to, so for example, serial killers and trying to understand how other people's minds work and how some people cannot move on from, from their position because there's another a different driving force than the one that you had. What was probably the most worrying for you and, and the, probably the one person you really wanted to, to help but you knew there was nothing you could do? What are you talking about serial killer in a serial killer sense? Yeah, in terms of somebody who is a prolific or a repeat offender, and you you actually you were kind of emotionally connected with that situation, not in terms of maybe what they did, but certainly with the empathy for that person, and and then but knew that there was a limit limit to what you could do, and there was probably very little help this person could receive. Yeah, like I say, I've wrote to quite a few high-profile prisoners, whether it be serial killers, murderers. Um, 
people like Charles Bronson, things like that. So Charles Bronson isn't the actor, by the way. He's a, a famous, oh, infamous prisoner here in the UK that's uh, one of Britain's longest-serving prisoners. Um, and, yeah, I've wrote to a lot of these different people and stuff. And the reason that I write to these people is because I... Always had, I'm a thick, uneducated street kid, but I've always had an interest in, in sort of criminology, forensic psychology. Why do people do what they do? And when you write to these people, like these serial killers and stuff, you you feel like, like I don't support them in any which way. The crimes are deplorable and stuff. And But the thing is, what I understand is that it stems from something, whether it be a triggering childhood or whatever the case may be. Now, the one interesting person that I wrote to and I... I like dialed into was Ian Brady, the serial killer, the Moore's murderer, as he's known. Um, and it was he, what it was. He was obviously he was born in Gorbals district of Glasgow, which is like the slums. Uh, ended up being sent by a sheriff down to uh, Manchester. Um, and yeah, and I he committed his crimes in an area that where I like used to live and stuff. And when I was in Strangeways, actually, when I was in Strangeways Prison, uh, HMP Manchester, I read a book on Brady. Now, I sort of, like, I, I read a lot of this, like, uh, it was like a true crime book and stuff. And when I left the prison, I, because he'd obviously been in Strangeways himself um, before the murders, um, and I just read about him, and I, I, I thought, I'm going to reach out, and I reached out to him. And it's like a morbid, because it's a bit macabre, isn't it? But... I wanted to understand his logic, why he did what he did, and try and get inside the mindset of this so-called intellectual or pseudo-intellectual, as a lot of people call Brady. And, yeah, I sort of... There's a lot of similarities in the sense of, like, we've both been in trouble. He'd been in Borstal. I'd not obviously been in Borstal and stuff. And he just opened up to me and divulged a lot. And then you, you learn in the information. I had an agenda every time I wrote to him. I was trying to naively believe that I could get the location of one of his last victims, uh, not his last victim, sorry, the last victim that's not been found, Keith Bennett. Um, and I wrote to him, because what it was, was I believe, Julie, that everyone that's writing to Brady at the time was going to be an academic or a student of psychology, forensic psychology, um, like I say, authors, journalists, and everything in between. Now, as a common criminal, I obviously, I thought he's more inclined to trust me than he would, let's say, an academic because he's going to see an agenda there. Now, I have my own agenda, but I wanted to see, can I hang with this class, like this so-called pseudo-intellectual, this, this so-called intelligent guy that was ahead of his time? Um, could I hang with him? Could I conversate with this person? And like I say, the fact he committed his crimes near where I lived and like I knew a lot of the areas and stuff like that and I knew that Myra Hindley's ashes were spreading apart down near Staley Bridge or Ashton Underline in Greater Manchester Thameside. I just wrote to him and stuff and I wanted to and I felt a connection there in the sense of I was trying to get inside, did he have a similar childhood to me? What was the trigger? What it's like I wrote to Dennis Nielsen as well. Dennis Nielsen was another one that I think his grand, he was very close with his grandfather and his grandfather was a fisherman and he went out to sea and I think he had a heart attack on the boat and obviously he tried to drown himself and he, he wrote this manuscript called The Drowning Boy and I just, I, I, I try to understand my own thing. I don't, I can't pinpoint a specific, oh, this is what it was and this was the connection I felt or this is why. All it was was I was raised um, watching serial killers, documentaries, gangs, documentaries and gangsters. Um, and like an idiot, people study these subjects and go to university and become very successful people. 
um, I, like an idiot, became involved with all of the above. Um, and it was a morbid curiosity mixed with, I think people, when you, when you write to these people, I think people confuse interest with, it, like a, a, with supporting the individual. Now, if I was ever in a room with Brady, I would have attacked him. Um, but he wouldn't accept my offer to go and see him at Ashworth uh, Psychiatric Unit. Um, but God knows I tried. I don't think I really answered that question, Julie, very well, but sorry. No, no, I think you did. You did. And I think um, right. I'm just, I'm, I'm absolutely horrified, really, and gutted that um, we, we, we've run out of time because your story is, is so crucial for people to hear. You know, the journey... Yeah through the healing that's gone on without healing if that makes sense the ability to cope with what's been without the kind of the therapeutic and the, the, the that kind of healing stuff as well it's um, yeah. turn your life around and, and you, you're incredibly you know eloquent and, and able to portray your message you're a great speaker Cody mm. and you know and for you to be able to be very honest and open about your situation, the things that you've done and been through. And, and, yeah. and, and you don't go into detail. You don't need to go into detail about events. You, you're, you're portraying yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the way you're doing it. You know, hats off to you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.